0: Before I left Houston, I was quite involved with the effort to pass HERO, the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, testified before committees and the Houston City Council, and this Equal Rights Bill aimed at making sure our gay and lesbian, transgender, especially transgender brothers and sisters, were not discriminated against in the city. Um, What was a big project for a lot of people, and it passed the city council two to one. And then this past fall, it was put on a ballot initiative and repealed. And one of the big frustrations for me in the whole fight for HERO was at the city council hearings and in this campaign they had last fall, the voice of the black church speaking out against HERO. And my white, male, rationalist, Unitarian, Universalist brain is just thinking all the time, I don't get it. This is just another kind of oppression. Shouldn't we be on the same side? And I had to rely over and over on an experience I had years ago to get me through it. So that I wouldn't just get frustrated with that. And I could keep on doing the work that needed to be done, what I could do. And the experience I kept calling up for myself to remember how difficult it was dealing with that frustration was when I was teaching at a high school in Boston. I taught in an urban Catholic high school, Cathedral High School in the South End. And one morning, I walked in the main door, up the main staircase, and I see two students in front of me being guided up the stairs by two Boston police officers. Not abusively, but pretty sternly and firmly. Instead of turning right to go down the hall to my classroom, I follow them left into the school office. And the school secretary nods the officers through into the principal's office, and they bring the boys in, they shut the door. Not quite in my face, but that's sure what it felt like. And I knock on the door a number of times, and it was pretty evident they weren't going to let me in, so... I went down to my classroom. Got through homeroom, took the attendance. All the while, all the students are asking if I'd seen their friends brought in by the police. Yes, I had. After homeroom, I was lucky enough that that happened to be my prep period for the day. And I was like, oh, there goes my prep period. Back down to the office I go to see what's going on, see if I can find out anything else. And the two guys are now sitting out in the waiting area of the main office, And I look at them, and i got to admit, you know, the first thought that went through my head when I saw them was, oh, God, what have these guys done now? Microaggression one of the day, because the two guys were black, and the two Boston police officers were white, and these two guys, although not bad guys, were the kind of guys that could cause some trouble at school once in a while, but they weren't weren't mean guys. And my first thought was, oh, what did they do now? So I asked, Well, what happened? One says, We're walking to school, and like this police car drives up and tells us to stop and pull over, and like he asks for our ID, and they had school IDs, but were they carrying them? No. (laughs) And they asked, What are we doing? We told them we're walking to school. And they didn't believe us. And then this guy comes out, they tell me. This thin, small, white guy comes running out of one of the brownstones. And this is on Union Park Street in Boston, in the south end, where there's rows of houses, you know, the classic Boston brownstone. And the guy comes running out. And he says, these are the guys, them and their friends. They're always so loud. They're snooping around, hanging around here. And Mr. Elwe told him, hang around, we we'll are walking to school. So the police brought him down to school to check out the story. Turns out, yes, they are students at the school. Whoa. So the guy who comes out to complain is um, gay, and the guys are black, and the police officers are white, and the whole can of worms just opened up for me in a way I hadn't really seen it before. Our kids just about 99% students of color are from four areas in town. South End, South Boston, Dorchester, and Roxbury. And the school sat, if you know where the Holy Cross Cathedral is in Boston, it sits right on Washington Street, right near the area where all those kind of neighborhoods are real close to each other. So our kids are coming from all those places. And all these students of color are walking through the South End, and the South End in Boston, beginning in the 70s, began to gentrify. And became uh, one of the gay neighborhoods in Boston. And there was a big gay population there when I worked there. And one thing I'd kind of noticed on the periphery, but didn't really jump out at me until I saw our students brought to school for walking to school while black, was that there was a lot of tension there. The uh, residents of the community didn't like the kids. The kids were loud, and they were coming and going to school, and and we get it. They're almost all students of color. So to them, it's going to feel a little different to have complaints about anything made. And a lot of the residents in the neighborhood are gay. And unfortunately, my students, they were not an intolerant bunch in general, but there was enough homophobia among them and intolerance the other way to just make me think as the teacher, like, oh, man, I got a good one on my hands now. So class plans that day the guys were brought in obviously were scrapped. They were scrapped for the week. And it had to come up for me like, okay, you're a white male in a room full of young people of color, mostly women, And you're straight, and your school's in a gay neighborhood, and what are we going to do with this? So we talked a lot. We talked a lot about the origins of the word nigger and faggot. We talked about fear. We talked about, yeah, you know what? It's unfair that people think that you are less smart, less capable, less safe a person than you are because of what you look like, how you dress, and how you talk. And I can't do anything about that. What I can do, what we can do, is we can say, all right, if that's, that's what we're dealing with, how do we get as ready for that as we can? So it's not that way as much as possible for the next generation, or the next, or the next. It baffled me then, and it still did in Houston, how difficult it was to get my young students of color to understand that a lot of the gay residents in the neighborhood where they were walking through school faced a lots of the same types of discrimination and intolerance that they did being people of color and young people of color. It may have manifested itself in different ways and it used different names, but intolerance and hate is intolerance and hate. And yet all intolerance and hate is different and experienced differently by people who experience it for different reasons. And we talked a lot about that for a good week. And as I'm sure you can imagine, we came up with no real answers other than a commitment to try and understand somebody who was an other more deeply. Try to practice more understanding and tolerance and less fear and hatred. I ended up making racism and sexism and classism and homophobia big units in my ethics class. We talked about this stuff a lot. And I've learned over the years from hearing from the students who were in those classes that it helped a lot. And. They helped me a lot. One of the things I really learned from that experience, and it's easy to talk about, is the, the theory of step up and step back. That it's okay to lend your voice and join in, but when you're the voice of power, like the white, male, heterosexual, Christian, with all the privilege, that you've got to watch yourself, that you're stepping back and leaving room for people whose voices not, might not be heard to be heard in the conversation, in the debate, in the argument. And I had to check myself a lot. A lot of times I wanted to jump in and correct them and tell them the way it was and how to think about something better. And I had to remind myself to step back and let their experiences talk first. That I was a teacher, but boy, this was a great example of teachers don't know everything. And I certainly didn't know what it was like to be a young person of color in Boston. I share this story because as we go into our deeper journey of our welcoming congregation certification and and trying to understand how all kinds of different oppression, the way we discriminate against and the way we have intolerance and hatred and fear for groups of otherness. One of the first things we've got to do is step back and say, from where do we enter the conversation ourselves And for many of us, it's from a position of privilege. And it's not a dirty word. You know, one of the things that can really get in the way of making progress with dealing with these really difficult forms of societal oppression is to thinking we're already tolerant enough. We're already educated enough. We're already on the right side enough. We're already there. Unitarian Universalists, we're mostly white, mostly employed, mostly college or graduate school educated. We support gay rights and the environment and feminism and you know we don't think racism is a good thing. We're on the right side of everything, right? Aren't we done? No. We're just beginning. The world may still have a lot of issues with all these things, but not me. I'm on the right side of everything. Rather, we're in a never-ending journey, each and every one of us, of understanding oppression and privilege and our place in it, and how each of us is an oppressor, and each of us in some ways is oppressed, depending on what groups and identities we have and mingle in us, or those that we don't have or don't mingle in us. We have to be careful of being arrogant that we're finished. And I tell you, there are times I wish I was finished. <laughs> you know, th- there's stuff that just knocks me off my my, my pedestal still. Um, and, and, and I'll confess, one's the word partner. You know, when I first heard the word partner, it was in the early '90s, and I was in divinity school, and I just couldn't get out of my head: law partner, dental office practice. You know, and I got what it was supposed to say, but it just didn't fit for me and it, it's been years since it's now a natural thing. but boy, I just wanted to not have to deal with that one. And, and another one is um, binary. Why is everything male, female, heterosexual, homosexual? What, why are all these divisions just two options instead of spectrums and circles and? alright, yes, that's true, and like, ah, oh, man, another thing I gotta do, okay, I can get this, I know that, you know, I'm, I don't see this the same way, I've learned enough from all things I've been through to step back, and boy, it's hard, I know, someone's put out something about the UU hymnal and that all but like 12 hymns are too binary to still be used without the language being changed, and I'm just going, oh, man, oh, maybe they're right, I don't know, But I'll step back and try and look and see. The welcoming congregation asks us to keep learning. And one of the first things we always have to do is learn about ourselves. We've got to wrestle with the idea, I think, over and over, that quite often the ways we see the world, most of us, We see it in normative ways because we see things through a filter in a lens that's been created through hundreds, thousands of years of culture that says being white and male and heterosexual and Christian is the norm for humanity while it's only but one lens humanity has. So sometimes it gets real easy for us to say, well, uh, why can't everybody just, you know, be colorblind? Well, we can't. We have the privilege to minimize. We have the privilege to say, how come everybody just can't see this way? Or how come everybody just can't conform to our cultural norms? When we say black lives matter, we don't mean other lives don't matter. We don't mean black lives matter more. What we've got to learn to hear is, Hey, our lives still don't matter as much. This is a problem. That's what I hear. I know that's not what some other people hear. When we say we're colorblind, or we're sexual orientation blind, or we're religion blind, or we're whatever blind, that all we are is just blind. When we want to be other blind, that's a good term, other blind, when we want to be other blind, we're saying that, well, I don't understand, or worse, I don't care, how women's experiences or gay experiences or trans experiences or black experiences or Muslim experiences are different from mine, yet equally human. It's not okay to be blind. The place we want to get to is where, in the beloved community, it shouldn't matter if you're male or female or transgendered or black or Muslim or Jewish or gay or Christian or what have you. But until we get there, it's still really important to recognize what makes someone who they are, and how that really affects how they see the world and what happens to them in ways we don't see because they don't happen to us. When we talk about stuff like this, if we come from places of privilege, if we're white, if we're male, if we're Christian, if we're heterosexual, one of the natural reactions can be, yeah, but that's not me. I know, because I have that reaction, because I'm white and male and grew up Christian and heterosexual. <laughs> and so the step up is like, okay, I'll be involved, and I've got to remember to step back. like I may not see this the right way. And that's a difficult thing to have to get into when you're the person who stands up up here and talks about this stuff on Sunday. Because I want you to go on a journey that I'm going through where I know I'm as imperfect as anybody else and there's always more I can learn when we go through the welcoming congregation journey and we learn how it connects to all the other ways in which human beings oppress discriminate hate each other it allows us to make more progress to be more comfortable in being uncomfortable it allows us to get into the process where we join with the other to liberate each and every other. And as we do this, as we engage these types of educational processes, we make progress. We are not there, but we have come away and we have a ways to go. A hundred years ago, women still couldn't vote in this country. 50 years ago, people of color were only just beginning to really actually have the right to vote and seek higher education and buy homes and neighborhoods they wanted to. 40 years ago, we'd all have been whispering in euphemisms about if there were any gay members in our church. So we're making some progress The way we keep making progress is to keep trying to get ourselves to go deeper and deeper. We're winning, but victory is not assured. The patriarchy and the collection of oppressions it uses to divide and conquer us is really dangerous. The metaphor I like to use is of a a cornered wild animal. And I think you see this in some of the political debating and candidates and discussions going on, and the rallies that are happening. You know, the old white male heterosexual Christian is confronted with the fact that it's going to lose, it's cornered. Everything's going to change around it. But if you know anything about wild animals and getting them cornered, they can still be pretty dangerous. So when we do the welcoming congregation... That's not a simple thing. That's a huge thing. That helps to liberate each other. That helps that process where we're actually going to achieve a little bit more of how we should be. The place where it really shouldn't matter if you're male or woman or gay or heterosexual or black. We're going to get closer. But we only get closer by continuing the journey and agreeing to go deeper with each other. Because we really can liberate each other. One oppresses another. But we can't liberate ourselves and I can't liberate you. Because liberation and that kind of change is not something that can happen when you do it to or for someone else. You can only achieve that by doing things with others. And so all of this is connected One of the reasons why I've put so much energy into making turkey sandwiches and going to the laundromat and finding people to help us serve dinner is that we're surrounded by a community of otherness. And we can't liberate each other unless we do it with each other, and we can't do it with each other if we're not in relationship with each other. So it's all connected our involvement in the world around us is intimately and deeply connected to our welcoming congregation learning and efforts and certification. Because we can't put a rainbow flag out on our building or our wall or a sign or wherever it's going to go and be people who are disassociated from the others who are around us. We have to be actively involved in creating the beloved community with them. And that's why we go out and do these things. Because it's all tied together. Only by being involved in a deep and real relationship and in community do we liberate each other. We don't gather here to escape the world, listen to me, and hang out with our friends. I wish I was that vain, but even I'm not. We gather here because it's the place we prepare and learn about ourselves so we can go out into the world and join in that process of liberating the world with each other